Hey, thank you for listening in to Risky Benefits, a podcast that informs you on all things benefits. We've got a saying around here, benefits isn't your main business, it's ours. Hey everyone, thank you for listening to Risky Benefits and welcome to this week's episode. Our guest this week is Don Yeager. Don is an award-winning keynote speaker, a New York Times best-selling author, multiple, multiple times over, host of Corporate Competitor Podcast, executive leadership coach, and longtime editor at Sports Illustrated. Um, Don has had the amazing opportunity to interview a ton of athletes and leaders who would be considered great, or as I would call them, goats. Um, he's taken a lot of time over his career to come up with characteristics that they share that make the great ones great. He even has a book about it, uh, which I think we brought in today and we can throw on the camera for sure, uh, amongst many of the other books he has. Today, we will dive into some of those characteristics and hear about the tips he has learned from them along the way. Um, but to add some context for today, and what's super important, you know, risky benefits obviously is our title. So we we obviously do a lot of employee benefits and insurance, but, but we serve... A, a vast community of people, right? Leaders, uh, employees, um, school teachers, people that are serving the youth and trying to help develop uh, leaders of the future. Um, you know, Don has children. I have children. Kyla has children. Obviously, it's cool when you can take these lessons that you learn uh, speaking with great people and, and help others that are out there learn to apply them in a way that's meaningful to us normal people. Um, you know, speak and for speak for myself. Okay. Um, and so that's really what we're going to try to do today. We're going to try to take, um, some amazingly cool stories and pull some nuggets out that, that those who are listening can hopefully use to grow from um, that. That's what we'd really like to do today. So getting into that, Don. Thanks for coming in. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kyle. Appreciate you guys having me. Absolutely. It was funny. So when I was prepping for this, it was like Kyla and I'd send a couple podcasts back and forth. We'd send like books back and forth. And I, 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 I somehow sequentially got it with older stuff coming to newer stuff. So I'd listen to one podcast and they'd inter introduce you, Don, and they'd be like, man, seven times on the New York uh, bestseller list. This is a thing, right? And you guys got into it. And so I was like, okay, seven's the number. And then Kyla's like, no, 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 seven's not the number. And then I'd listen to another one and it was like, 10 times. And I'm like, crap, it's 10. She's like, no, 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 no. 10's not the number. I was like, Don just doesn't quit, man. Well, we're hoping that by the time, not, not long after this podcast release, we'll We'll have number 12. So we, we've just finished uh, writing a book. I think you may know this with yeah. Deion Sanders. Yeah. And um, uh, the way that book has taken off in their pre-sales uh, for the book, it releases in March of 2024. Uh, I think it um, it could be number 12, which, uh, you know, in the history of the New York Times list, like fewer than 30 people have ever had 12 um, in the nonfiction category. So it's a pretty crazy like, I, I just, yeah, it's crazy. It's pretty neat. Yeah, you it's just amazing. sit sometimes, you go, if you'd have told me as a young writer that I'd have one, I right. would have lost my mind and thought that's the coolest thing ever. And anyway, so it's very neat. Well, it's 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 humbling. Um, what, what makes it super weird, though, Don, is that, so take that, take the accomplishments, what, what you just said, right? Um, the, to the listeners out there, if you can imagine Don walks into the office, right. In this long hallway on the way into the podcast room. And, um, 
Don is the most non, just the most unassuming, kind, gentle, hey, how you doing? Like, I feel like I could have a normal conversation with you. I think you build it up in your head before you meet somebody who does pretty cool stuff. And it's like, wow, this guy is just a normal dude. Um, well, so, we all mentioned having children, and, and yeah. I think that humbles you. Uh, it's cool. funny. We talk about 11 or 12 or whatever yeah. the number is. Uh, my my son, 15 years old, um, is is really good about reminding me, well, but you've written 40, <laughs> so you've only got 12 that are bestsellers. That's 28 failures, Dad. You know? Oh, and so, yes, that's, that's fantastic, right. Fantastic, man. Ego check. Ego oh, totally, check. yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, in fact, um, you'll see in the front of the book, I, I autograph a lot of books, be great, right? That's, that's cool. what I write. But when he was learning how to, how to write um I had to write script, yeah. um, as all the teachers on your listeners would appreciate. Um, uh, he didn't; it wasn't that great for him to figure out script, and so he would watch me autograph all these books, and yeah. he would he would often hand them to me. I'd sign them, and then he'd hand me the next one. And so one day he said, "Dad, why do you tell all these people to be quiet?" <laughs> he didn't get great. He thought, yeah. he and so it. it's like you know, he couldn't read the script, and it was be quiet. That's so awesome. yeah, again, they humble you. You're it's actually good. making me think of these. I have more conversations with my kids about how are they going to sign anything one day because you don't know cursive, right? Exactly. Oh, uh, it's right. They, it's lowercase. Scribble. Uh, it's scribble, <laughs> well, right? Hit an X. Yeah, and I don't know about you, Don, but uh, and and Kyla, when I was a kid, I remember a specific. My dad took me to see uh, Jim Abbott play. I don't know if you guys know who of course, he is. Yeah. Okay, so one-handed baseball one-handed player. One-handed baseball player. Uh, we were in California. My dad was stationed at Edwards Air Force Base, and it was a big thing. I wanted to go see this game. So dad takes me, and I practiced my signature as a little kid for months because I was like, what if one day I get to sign a baseball? See, back in the day, and you would like, most people that have been around for a while know this. Like Kids would wait for the end of the game. They'd go to the fence, and the baseball players would come over, and they'd sign autographs. And I, as a kid, all of my buddies, like we'd sit there and practice that autograph for months, right? Like, because maybe one day you were going to be a professional ball player and you'd actually get to sign a baseball. Um, and so I think about that now and I'm like, our kids don't have a clue. Like none of them, not you actually, there's companies out there. You can actually pay to get a signature done for you so that you have one. I'll have to work on that. That's yeah. interesting. <laughs> that's right. Sorry. It, no, just I, an odd random thing, but just so you know, that's a thing. Um, all right. So let's get into it. Um, Don, here's my, my first question to, that I put on here. I didn't put it on here. I'm just going to be honest. Kyla put it on here, and it was a brilliant question. Um, so If it was brilliant, I'm assuming it was hers. There you go. It was <laughs> her. Uh, so, and here's what it is. Why does an 11 times, soon to be 11 12, for now. Yeah, yeah. New York Times bestselling author choose Tallahassee, Florida? <laughs> so I moved to Tallahassee many years ago. Uh, before I was at Sports Illustrated, I was my last newspaper job was I was the political editor for a newspaper here in Florida, and all the political editors live in the state capital. Okay. And so I moved here, and then Sports Illustrated came along a couple of years later and offered me a job, and they only have 30 writers in the whole world. You can live anywhere you want to live. That's cool. I love living in Tallahassee. It's just a spectacular town. Um, I love that it's just a town you can just be you in, right? You don't have to be anybody else in Tallahassee. So many other places, and I have friends who live in other communities where they feel like they've got to be somebody because of where they live. Tallahassee doesn't require that of you, right? It's just a great town. And so uh, I've stayed here the entire time. It didn't matter what what we've achieved or what's happened. um, This is the place to be. 
That's super cool. You know, it's interesting. I, I have had lots of conversations with my wife over Tallahassee. It's a small town. I, if Florida state wasn't here, uh, you know, and FAMU and, uh, probably the state, uh, most, mostly state employees, it, it probably would be a much smaller town. Um, but it's one of the few places you can go to the airport and get in and out in about 10 minutes. <laughs> Heck, I have to tell you, I've actually had, and I hope we don't get anybody in trouble today, but, uh, Delta Airlines, I fly so much Delta. Uh-huh. I've got 4 million miles on Delta that um, that they, they've actually pulled planes up for me. Like if I'm late, <laughs> yeah. they'll pull a plane back, yeah. which try that in Atlanta. Anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Try that in Atlanta, yeah. right? So the Delta team here is so great yeah. and gracious. My daughter even makes cookies for them at the holidays because <laughs> the Delta awesome. teams take such good care of our family. So That's really cool. Yeah. Well, I know for all those that are out there listening that are in the rat race and constantly flying, um, you may have to pay a little bit more for tickets, um, but you parking is not an issue. That's right. Right. And it's a quick walk in and security is maximum 10 minutes. And all the security people get to know you after a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. They, do. Right. Yeah. they do. They yeah. um, do. Well, that's cool. So it's kind of fun. Like we were just curious. I know a lot of people who end up in Tallahassee are, are a lot of them are transplants, not all of them. And, and it's always an interesting, uh, you get an interesting voyage when you kind of hear how they got here. Um, but speaking about voyages and journeys, one of the questions we have in here, I, I was listening to an old story that you had given and candidly, I can't remember which podcast it was from, but it was on how you got started in journalism. Mm-hmm. And there are some things like I just find super interesting. My mom always used to tell me, and I'm not at all trying to make this religious. It's just what my mom used to tell me. Man makes his plans, God orders his steps, right? And so I was really, that jumped in my head when I heard you tell a story about ROTC mm-hmm. and that you, as in your youth, had signed up for an ROTC program. And I guess as the story went, they didn't have one or they didn't have enough people to form it. And so they auto-enrolled you in, in what I think was a journalism a class? student newspaper. Is yeah. that what it was? Yeah. So I was, my family was moving. My dad was a preacher. Okay. And my family was moving from Japan, where, where we were living, uh, to uh, Indianapolis, Indiana. Okay. And um, signed up for classes. And I had spent all my life. I grew up in Hawaii. I was yeah. born and raised in Hawaii. lived in Japan. All, all my life had been around military families. So I was just sure military was a great opportunity for me. Signed up for ROTC. They called the night before classes started. Didn't have enough kids sign up, as you said. And they put me in the student newspaper. And who would have guessed that all these years later, it would be my profession. So, you know, it's, you're right. Uh, I made, I made my plans. God changed my steps. That's pretty cool. You know, one of the surrounding questions I have to it was, because I I think back to, as parents, you have these, uh, you aspire for things for your kids, right? Um, And I know my dad was military, so my dad retired as a colonel. And um, I, I remember in my youth, he was super structured. Um, he was a great athlete. He was a big man. And so I think he had these ideas for me. And then similar to you, it was like I ended up taking a path. And I guess one of the questions I'd have for you is, as your parents playing a support role to Don and who Don was one day going to be, when you ventured down that path of journalism, you know, how did that impact them? Did they have expectations? Did How did they support you in that and the progress of kind of where you would end up. I think they were always, um, it was really important to them. Not that I, not, not that I pick anything in particular, Okay. 
but did I commit myself to being really good at whatever it is I picked? And um, that was their thing, right? Yeah. Was just uh, choose choose your path, but 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 attack it excellently, right? Yeah. And um, uh, so that was it for me, right? It was really about trying to try define um, what excellence could look like for me. And for me, what I realized was my um, my superpower, if you will, yeah. is asking questions. Like okay. I'm really good at drawing things out of people. And, um, so journalism ultimately fit really naturally for me. I love to know things. I want to know them before other people. So that obviously also played into it. And, uh, it allowed me to find a career in newspapers, um, and then Sports Illustrated, which was an amazing 12 year journey. And then, um, and then now uh, off writing books and uh, and speaking to companies and audiences and doing podcasts and you know all the things that that we love to yeah. do. It's awesome. That's super cool. So there was no never any pressure to to go into like preaching or any of that kind of stuff. No, it's funny. Um, my my father passed away a couple decades ago, but my sisters when I started doing public speaking, yeah. uh, which was something I did kind of post Sports Illustrated. Um, my sisters both would attend some of the speeches I would give occasionally and they would regularly, uh, tell me, you know what, watching you up there, it's like, it's like, it's like watching dad. And it was kind of cool. Cause I, obviously I'm not, I'm not preaching, yeah. but I'm, but I'm telling stories and yeah. I'm telling them in a way that is attended. I'm intending to, to, uh, reach people emotionally. And if you do that, they'll, they'll you'll be memorable. And, um, and those were all things that my father taught me. That's pretty cool. Yeah. How about your mom? What did you, what'd your mom do? She was mostly a housewife. She okay. loved um, raising kids. There were five of us and uh, spread out over a long window of time. There's a gap between myself and my next oldest sister of 11 years. So okay. I was kind of the surprise. Okay. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then behind me, they had another one. And so uh, a couple of surprises. But we... Um, it just is a. It was for her, uh, you know. She just loved being being a mom. She That's was cool. fantastic at it. She was a disciplinarian. Was she? she? Yeah, she scared the crap out of me. Was awesome. <laughs> was Dad was bigger, but mom mom could scare you. It was yeah. Good. yeah, yeah. I feel like it was it, my upbringing wasn't too dissimilar, uh, in that mom played the same role. It was always funny because she was there, right? She was always with us and. So when you came home, that was like the first line of defense. Like that's what you hit first. And depending on how that went for us, then it made it to dad. I'm not sure about for you, but I always hoped it would stop at like line one, you know? Yeah. But my dad was as big a guy as he was, Don. It was always funny because he would take me into a room and he'd close the door and he'd be like, bud, we're going to, we're going to have a serious conversation first thing is, did you do it? <laughs> you know what I mean? And one time I hadn't, and he actually didn't discipline me. We had a good conversation and we called it quits, but, uh, I was always grateful for that. So I'm sure that that was impactful for you too. Absolutely. So um, if, if Rick's dad is listening, he's told me this story before. So that was a very memorable experience was. for him. It was, so. it was because, yeah. I mean, that's like the decider of your fate, you know, <laughs> it's like, how's this going to go? Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, so tell us more, you know, I was actually really interested in some of the early parts of your life, Don. Um, you, you obviously, you got into journalism in high school. How did you make that trans transition uh, later into journalism? Did you go to college for that? Or yeah. What did that look like? Studied uh, journalism and history. Uh, so I had a double major at uh, Ball State University. Okay. And um, 
uh, yeah, just I, I, I had a sense from even that literally that 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 window in which I was placed into that classroom that I, I had found something. You know, I had found a, a place where uh, it satiated my my need for um, to uh, knowledge. I loved I loved to be able to ask people questions and learn. I loved being the first one to know, as I said, yeah. and um, and I loved being the teller of stories yeah. and. Um, uh, Storytelling was always something I loved and worked to get better at constantly. And so it gave me all of those. It, it, it was a good mixture. And, and so literally as I was coming out of high school, it was to find a journalism school. That's cool. Okay. And so you applied, did you apply to many or did you just kind of know Ball State was the one? Um, well, I was paying for my own school yeah. and it was a, uh, it was in state and it was cheap, Yeah, you know, and uh, yeah. that was a really, and it had a good, a well-regarded journalism program. So yeah. they were better. I, I, I would have loved to have gone to other schools, but uh, couldn't afford them. So it no. worked out. And you know what? Um, I, it's it's funny. We've talked about kids a little bit. Um, for years, my kids have heard me laugh about because Ball State wasn't necessarily the best academic institution when I was there. Um, and I made jokes about it regularly, about the fact that they let, they had the, they, they did in. the two things that I needed. They let me in and let me out. Right. Um, and, uh, and so a couple of years ago, actually 2019 was the hundredth anniversary of the university oh, cool. and they picked uh, 52 graduates of distinction, 52 graduates who had um, David Letterman obviously would be one. Um, cool. But, but uh, I was also one of their graduates of distinction in a hundred years of, and so they invited us all back to school and at the campus. And I brought my kids with me, and uh, but on the trip up there, you had to warn them like, "Hey, all those years, Dad's joked about what a bad school it was. Now you're going to be on campus. <laughs> now you're hanging out with the president of the university. Now you're going to, you know, do me a favor, like you know, all those jokes. That, that was just a joke, right? Yeah. You got it. And then it worked really well until the president asked my son." So, so do you want to come here to Ball State? Oh, no. And he started laughing, <laughs> which didn't go over very well. So anyway. That's cool. It's yeah. interesting. I uh, So dad was stationed at Wright-Pat Air, Air Force Base, which is in Dayton, Ohio. Dayton, right. I actually listened to some of your podcasts. You had done a podcast with um, Ryan Hawk, who I went yep. to, I played football in high school with. Oh, you're kidding and me. And so wow. we were at Centerville and we'd drive back and forth. But a lot of the kids in that area ended up going to Ball State. Yeah. Yeah. I don't Were know. They, obviously, they weren't very good students. Well, so you know, good. listen. Like, I mean, I'm just, you know, like, we'll, we'll, the books we'll and the information are is. the same, Don. We'll call it for what it is. I was That's good. Cool. I, uh, no, I love it. I love it. But, you know, a real important lesson, and we talk about this too yeah. with kids, right? We always talk about lessons, is uh, it's not where you start, right? It's what you do with what you, it's what you do with where you start. That's right. Absolutely. And it, it's awesome. I would love to have gone to Northwestern. Sure. I would love to have gone to Indiana, Indiana or, or, or Missouri, which had the greatest journalism programs. I would love, but they, they weren't in my mix. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. it wasn't where I started. Yeah. That's what I did with where I started. I think they, hopefully people really heard what you just said, because that is such a huge nugget. Uh, you know, our kids, when we talk about school now, um, in Tallahassee, there are many blue ribbon schools, or th those are schools that we would say are just top-notch schools, right? Especially within the state of Florida. And um, there are a lot of wonderful schools. Uh, you could go private, you could go public. But the moral of the story is, is I was having a conversation with uh, my son who likes engineering stuff. And I said, Jackson, I was like, you know, 
his older sisters, they school's kind of like a thing that they do so that they can get to the next level. They, they show up, they do it. I don't, I wouldn't say that they actually love learning. Um, they love the interactions with people. They love the, the sports. They they'll do the work. Uh, but Jackson, like he likes the work. And that's when I looked at him and I was like, you know, the book, you can give any kid a book. It's like, what do you do with the information in the book? And then when I find the kid who is like super excited about the information in the book, then I'm like, how do I level him up in that? Maybe he needs to go to a different school than the girls because he wants to get more out of it. Yeah, no question. If you can, you know, if you can figure it out. Um, but anyway, just it's cool. Like as I think about how we develop the kids and uh, what the kids do, you know, what you were doing when you were young and somebody I'm sure poured into you as you went down the journalism path. Um, and I've heard you speak a lot about mentorship as well. Mm. Um, trying to be that for others. Um, I, I, I wanted to get into, as, as we kind of talk, I, I wanted to get into your time at sports illustrated. I think mm. you spent 12 years there. Yeah. Pretty incredible. Um, what would you say, Don, was the biggest lear- lesson you learned while you were at Sports Illustrated, if you had to sum it up? You know, I think the thing that was probably um, most professionally rewarding there was that it was an incredible collection of talent, right? These were the best at everything. Everybody there were, I mean, for some, they were my heroes. Like these were people I I was reading because I believe that if you want to be good at anything, you go study other. Uh, I think success leaves clues, okay. right? You go find success and look for its clues. And I wanted to be a great writer. And so even long before I went to work at Sports Illustrated, I read Sports Illustrated because it was such good writing. That's cool. And I would also I would often ask myself like. You know, gosh, that's such a great anecdote, or there's so such great detail. Wonder what question they asked to to get that to draw that from somebody. I was always trying to study it. So now I'm suddenly in the presence of these people. But what stood out was that there was it was an it was an um, an atmosphere of zero jealousy. Right, mm-hmm. there was nobody. A lot of places you work, um, the, if you get a good assignment, it's it, then I have to rip at you because you didn't. It should have been mine, right? Um, at Sports Illustrated, everybody was so good that you just immediately knew you wouldn't be on this staff yeah. if it if you weren't best in class. And so everybody, there there was zero jealousy about. Um, you know, if I had a, if I had this week's cover story, you rooted for me for it, as opposed to said, gosh, my story, which was longer and better than yours should have been on the cover. Yeah. Uh, it just was, I, I love that. And I, and I think it taught me a lot about what happens when you're really in the presence of true greatness, your greatness. Um, you know, they say game recognizes game, right? Um, a players want to hang with a players. Yeah. B players want to hang with C players. And if you're an A player, you know, you want to hang with A players and that's who I was with. That's pretty cool. Yeah. You're making me think of a movie that I love. Have you, have you watched this? What is it? The Secret Life of Walter Mitty? There, there, there's a scene in the movie where, um, it's like the, for the New York Times, um, he's the guy that sits in the back room that nobody really knows who he is. Uh, it's kind of like on the football team. It's the guy who's taking the routes that that's that the ball's not going to come to that person. Right. But they're doing the play in service of everyone else. So as a, as the New York times goes, he's the one who makes these photographs look beautiful for the front page of the New York times. Mm. And there's this final photo, um, that's going to take place. And the artist sends the photo to this guy and he loses the photo. 
And so the bosses are coming after him and it's like this really big deal. And you go through the whole movie anyway, you get to the end and it's the quintessence. It's the, it's the one photo that really exemplifies, you know, the New York times. And you know what it was? Hmm. It was him doing his job. One day he was sitting out in front of a fountain and he's looking at this photo through his, his lens and he's just staring intently at this image trying to get it right, analyzing it to put it on the New York times. And the photographer who normally sends the photos in was off about 200 yards out watching him and took a photo of him doing it. And that was what it was. Mm. It was like this, this idea that, that, that chasing this perfect photo was the brilliance of doing the job in and of itself. It's like you're, you're surrounded by greatness and mm. everybody's so focused on doing great things that there is no time for jealousy. It's just, yeah. everybody's trying to achieve the level. And when you step up, now I need to step up and they step up and now I need to step up and everyone drives each other forward, it seems. Oh yeah, it's a spectacular. And there's just, you know, there's only a limited number of places, I think, when, where that kind of environment exists too often in corporate world. Yeah. You know, there's a sense that if you advance, you did it at my cost and I have to... You know, I have to be bothered by that. And, right. um, and you know, so let's go to the water cooler and let's talk about it. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it's just it's it's cool when you can be in a place where where there is um, a true a true appreciation of each other's talent. How did you cultivate that kind of environment? I mean, you, you must have had some role in that. I think a lot of it was just, um, you know, you what you wanted was that everybody uh, poured into each other. Yeah. Right. And, and so each, you, you would seek each other's counsel a lot. Okay. And that was a real big deal was, um, you know, I, I wasn't an expert in covering the, the national football league, but okay. if I was doing an NFL story, our expert, Peter King would absolutely sit down and say, Don, you need to talk to this person. And, and here's my, here's my, um, uh, my open book to give you all the phone That's numbers cool. so that you, you have all the right people. So everybody, you know, there wasn't this, um, we, we talked a lot about being a river, not a reservoir, yeah. right? A river to each other as opposed to a reservoir. I'm going to keep mine, right? Yeah. And, um, and when you're a river to each other, you, you create a, a dynamic atmosphere. That's super cool. So you said that you guys were all, you could live anywhere you want. Right. And it sounds like you have always been that way. Yeah. But now in the world that we're in today, a lot of companies are still adjusting to remote, you know, staff. And how did you guys have that open door where you guys were lifting each other up if you were remote? And what would you tell companies that are still struggling to, you know, make sure they're keeping their culture alive remotely? I think so. I, I mean, it's a different environment than what you're talking about, because many people, you know, the culture of a lot of organizations is built around, you know, a, um, a physical environment, right, where they get a chance to regularly interact with each other. And that's how they're ours was, you know, all of us came to work there from uh, and, and didn't require that you had to live in New York. Um, but one of the things that worked out really well was when we traveled, if I was in Boulder, Colorado, I'd, I'd go to dinner with Rick Riley, right? If I was in uh, if I was in South Carolina, I'd have dinner with Gary Smith. So you would you would have you you would look for opportunities. If you're traveling, you would always try to look and spend time together. And um, and in non um, non work environments, right? We got to know each other. We got to know each other's families. We got to know. And and that's I think one of the challenges in this Zoom related world that 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 many things have shifted to, is that it's difficult 
to have that kind of, um, uh, you know, I, I do a lot of work. I do some executive coaching with a, with a guy that runs a large company in Boca Raton. The company doubled in size during the pandemic, but uh, none of those people were ever hired by actually coming to the office. Mm -hmm. right? so, so they don't know each other. And, and culture was always super important to the company. So, you know, they're trying to figure out how do you create that mix? How do you create? Because culture for them was, in fact, created um, in, the, in the workspace together, right? It was the ability for us to sit, talk, brainstorm, you know, whiteboard together, crazy ideas. And, um, and that's tough to do when you're going to get one hour together on Zoom or whatever it is. So uh, one thing we did really well was always, you know, we were always staying physically in contact with each other when we were out on the road. And I think that that's, that's one thing that you would find uh, most companies probably still struggle with. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Did you guys find checkpoints throughout the year where everybody came together? A couple of times a couple year. A couple of times a year? Yeah. Yeah. Only, and, and because it wasn't really, it, it was, it was awesome when it could happen, but it, but Think about necessary. taking anybody out. wasn't necessary because we were all meeting with each other when we were out on the road, right? That's cool. And then we'd all spend time in New York at the headquarters with the editors um, when necessary. Very cool. Very cool. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, trying to get on things that, that maybe impacted you in such a way that it kind of changed who you were going to become one day, right? Mm -hmm. And when I listened to all the different uh, interviews you've done, and this stood out to Kyla as well, the, the work done interview obviously was an impactful scenario in your life. Um, at least that was what I pulled just from listening to you speak about it. Mm -hmm. um, that's not to say, and I, and I know for you that the Walt, Walter Payton was, was quite impactful as well. But I, I just felt like when you were describing the room that you were in, when you were with work done, when he met the person who, uh, I guess... Uh, Killed he, his mother. That's right. Yeah, he was the trigger man. Yeah. So, you know, to anyone who's heard the story, they could tell that this was a, a big experience, I guess, in your life. What I would ask you is how did that experience change you as a person, maybe mm -hmm. as a husband or as a father? How did that stick with you and kind of modify you? Wow. It totally, I mean, it's so for those who don't know the story, Warwick yeah. Dunn was a, was a running back, uh, played college football at Florida State. Um, played in the professional leagues in, in, in Tampa Bay and Atlanta. Um, but when he was 18 years old, senior in high school, his mother, who was a police officer, was shot and killed in a robbery at a bank. Um, Warwick goes into the, you know, goes to college, goes to the NFL, starts a charity in which he buys homes for women like his mother, single moms. He's now bought 230 homes for single mothers. It's amazing, right? Uh, he wins the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award, gets a chance to write a book, asked me to be help him write the book. And in the process of doing so, um, I make a suggestion of, you know, I want to know what he would say if he could meet the man that killed his mom. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, he actually thinks about that, comes up with some questions. But as it happens in that window time, I find out that if we fill out some paperwork, we could actually go to death row and meet the guy. And Warwick had never spent any time in the presence of this guy. Um, so we go to we go to Louisiana. We go to death row, and um, and I go with him. And uh, the man starts telling a different story. He wasn't really there the night it happened. Blah blah. blah. And Warwick just holds up his hand. And says, "By the way, let me tell you what that night did to me." 
and you know he proceeds to say tell him what the knight did to him but he but he ends the little conversation with him by saying i don't know why you came here today but i know why i did i came here to forgive somebody and i remember <laughs> i'm getting chills right now but i remember watching the guy the inmate here's this hardened inmate right in prison headed to death row just start bawling because he realized he'd been lying to the to Warwick and he realized he had just been given the greatest gift one human can give another, right? Which is forgiveness. And in that um moment we, we you know, we were all sitting around the table crying and um we we get outside and I asked Warwick, Where'd you get that? Like why, where do you have that? Where'd that come from? And he says his mother had told him as a kid forever, like her favorite saying was, We're all promised adversity, right? There's going to be a moment ahead where something's going to happen that will change the way you wake up the next morning. But in those moments, you get two choices. You can be bitter or you can be better. And as my son, I ask you to always choose better. That's cool. And Warwick said he was looking at the inmate and he wanted to make his mother proud. And um, so I, you asked the question, uh, what did it do for me, right? Well, number one, it was game-changing on yeah. the idea of forgiveness, which I need to be better at, right? I'd love to be better. I'd love to be work done on forgiveness, but I'm not. But it also helped me remember the importance of perspective, right? Bitter or better. Pretty simple. Um, I have to choose better, right? Yeah. I have to, I have to look at situations and I have to, I have to pick the right. I have to pick the right path, and um, that's tough to do. And uh, when somebody, when you're challenged that way, it can be really impactful. And that's what uh, that that what I that's what I would say would be my greatest lesson. That's cool from that experience. And you know, one of the reasons I ask that question is I, I Don, I often find. Um, like I got a buddy right now who's struggling with brain cancer. He's got two kids, mm -hmm. um, and his wife's doing everything she can to support him getting through this circumstance. Right. And I've been checking with, in with him weekly, just like, how you doing, man? Like, you know, what's going on in your life? How you doing? And the, and I was listening to, um, this is terrible. It was on a reel. Okay. I was listening to a reel. And I hear some cool stuff every now and again, and it really is impactful to me. And it made me think, but the real basically was talking about this famous adventurer and it gets into this, this guy spends his whole life doing these epic adventures. Right. And then one day he gets so sick that he can't do any of it anymore. Matter of fact, he can't even get out of a chair. Right. And he's almost just to the chair. Like that's his life. So this, this guy goes to interview him. And um, it was a famous uh, interviewer, uh, but the gentleman sits down and asks him some very poignant questions. And one of the questions he asked was, you know, for a man that spent his life exploring this world and the greatest things that this world has to offer, you know, now you're stuck to a chair. So what do you do now? And you know what his response was? He looked across the table and he said, I only do what matters. And that stuck with me in this epic way because now I'm sitting here thinking about that and my mind was just reeling and my buddy popped into my head and I sent him a note. I said, 
I'll just tell you, Sean is his name. And I was like, Sean, your lens through which you see the world is different right now than anyone else's. I was like, I could live a lifetime and try to learn what you're, what you're getting. I know this is a weird way to say it, but you're getting blessed with an opportunity to see through a lens that I, I just can't fathom. And most other people can't fathom about what's actually important. Right. Because I was drawing from what that guy said. It was like, what would you do now? Only that which matters. And I'm like, Sean, what truly matters? What has God taught you in this? Like, what have you learned as a person? When you now look at the world and you look at your kids and you don't know how much time you have and you're truly fighting, not that any of us know how much time, but his seems at the moment to have a, a shorter clock. Right. And like, if you could teach me and I could learn to see through your lens to, to, to try to be a better person. What would you tell me? What have you learned? And I think he took a step back. Um, and it's one of those things where you see the three dots on the text, you know, and it's like, and then they go away and then they come back and then they go away. And, and then he finally replied back. He goes, I need to get back to you on Rick on that, Rick. He's like, I, I haven't had enough time to process that, mm -hmm. but I'm waiting for that conversation because it hasn't happened yet. And I, truly want to know what he says, but in the context of your story and why I asked the question, I'm always looking at these life experiences that people have. And it's like, as a younger person in life, if you could learn to look through the lens of somebody who's done that, who's been there and, and take that learning and actually apply it, you know, somewhere in there's that, that pursuit of excellence and or greatness, right? It's just a little bit um, touchy feely. It's not as, I'm not running a football down the field you know, but to the people who are listening to this show, it's like, maybe, maybe I'm a school teacher. Maybe I am a trash collector, like whatever it is, if I can take that greatness home to my family, like how much better would we all be? Hmm. You know, Good question. it's interesting. Cause you, you know, when you think about all these people you talk to and even the titles of greatness, and I've been thinking a lot about that word and it's like, have you ever done something in your life that you're just not proud of? And then you think about it and you're like, man, I'm not that great of a person right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? But you still are, are striving for this greatness. Um, and, and I think it's like, not until you do something you're not proud of and you realize like who you really are, then you're free to go try to achieve what this greatness could be. It's like it level sets you a little bit, you know. Well, we all have to get knocked down a little bit, to, yeah. To uh, to, but I, I think you know that's the. Um, I mean, Winston Churchill, so great, right? About uh, you know, it's about what you do when you get up. It's about you know that if you, um, uh, if it were just a simple, easy ride to the top, yeah. You know, it, it, how much joy is there in that? It is the um, it's the pick me up. That that's where that's where that's where characters developed. That's where um, it's funny. I get asked every once in a while, like as I take off on writing these books yeah. and doing these stories, what is it that I seek most? And um, you know, I always love I love people that I believe are are misunderstood. Right? I think that's a that's a great that's a great place to start. You know, that a lot of people don't aren't really fully understood. Um, and, but I also love the people that have figured out, you know, figured out what it is to pick themselves back up. And, cool. um, uh, and as you, because there's so much great instruction in that, right? There's so much we can do with that. Uh, I can get better 
by learning how someone picked themselves back up. And I can be reminded if bitter or better are my choices, yeah. right? I can be reminded um, how important it is to pick better. I was just going to say one other thing about that work done um, that it stood out to me was that you you mentioned in speaking somewhere along the way that you, he said that his mother, if she was alive, she'd have the best house in Baton Rouge. She'd yeah. have the biggest, best house. But because she's not here, 230 children who wouldn't have houses have them today. And that perspective, just being able to be better instead of bitter about that situation really stood out to me. And it, it really is all about perspective. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Warwick is uh, fantastic. He's one of my favorite people of all time. They actually just inducted him into the College Football Hall of Fame cool. this week. So, um, uh, which is really cool. Well, it makes you, you know, people ask like, why do bad things happen? Right. And that's like you said, bad things are going to happen. Really, the question is, is what do you do with it when it does happen? Right. And I think that like, that's a good nugget if you're listening, right? It's, it's like, you don't expect bad things not to happen. Expect them to happen. I guess it's the, and I heard you say this in another one of your um, conversations, it's the foundation you have that helps you define what you will do when it does happen. That's right. Which was pretty cool. Yeah, no, I love it. I um, and that's I think the thing that's been you know maybe the greatest career blessing for me is just the opportunity to get a chance to learn from so many. You you know you made reference to a number of them, but people who have um, have been through incredible life journeys of their own, and um, I get to I get to learn from their life journey yeah. uh, just by being in relationship, which is really great. You became the lens. It's like I, that's really what that's my role. It's funny, you know. People ask every once in a while, like, "What's your, what's your, you know, what do you see about yourself yeah. in life?" And for me, the biggest part is just that I'm, I'm the, um, I'm the chronicler. Right? Yeah, I'm the person that if I can get you to trust me enough cool. that you really open up and tell me your story in a way that is, um, that that allows other people to 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 learn from it, um, then. Then I serve that role, right? I'm the, I'm the, um, I'm, I'm just the, you know, the vehicle. But by creating that vehicle, uh, hopefully doing it well enough, um, then other people are better as a result. It's pretty neat. It's actually interesting. Just the founder of our company, Mike Sheridan, he actually, he, um, he's Irish, and he's known as that. He's always said he's known as a storyteller. So I thought it was interesting when, uh, I can't remember, it was one of the conversations you had had with somebody where you were talking about like what your top, your, like your brand. Uh, and one of them, the top one was storytelling, Yeah, which I find fascinating because there aren't a ton of people out there that are really good at that. But you always know when you meet one because it's never more interesting to sit down and have a conversation with somebody. Well, it's funny. My father, um, I made reference, my father was a yeah. preacher and so, uh, uh, he used to tell me all the time that uh, storytelling. Uh, in fact, the, f the phrase that that was that hung on the wall of the the writer's room at Sports Illustrated. I love this. Was storytelling is the currency of kings and queens. Oh, that's right? cool. And that if you can become a storyteller, if you could learn how to tell stories, um, a you'll you'll you have a chance to become exceptional at anything you do, right? Storytelling is just a, it's the, it's the bright line between people who are really good at what they do and people who are great at what they do, whether that's a politician or, uh, you know, a teaching or a business leader, whatever yeah. it might be. If you can tell a story, you have the ability to, to draw people to stay with you, 
right? And to, to make the journey with you. And that's where things get great. Um, and so, yeah, storytelling was always, um, it, I, I began to learn it from my father. I began yeah. to study it uh, because of him. I've spent a lifetime studying the best storytellers uh, on the planet, um, largely because I want to be considered one of them. That's and cool. um, I've been lucky. Guys like Simon Sinek and John Maxwell um, uh, refer to me as one of the best storytellers they've ever worked with. And those are those are pretty good storytellers Heck themselves. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I, I'm High lucky. Price. Takes one to know one, huh? <laughs> I'm lucky to um, to to have. Uh, it's a skill set I work on constantly, and it's a skill set I now teach. I teach it to a lot of places, and which is really exciting. Yeah, maybe if you don't mind, for anyone who's listening, a if they want to use you as a resource on the side where you're teaching, and maybe contract with your group, or b it just when it comes to simple ways to really cultivate the, 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 the skill of, of storytelling. What, what would you say to people? So I think um, the, the lessons I teach are that I think the two greatest weaknesses of most storytellers is they don't know their audience. Okay. They don't know enough about who they're telling their story to. And, and, and I argue that in this day and age, um, that's a terrific, I mean, that's like, yeah. it's, it's almost malpractice. To <laughs> it not shouldn't know happen. You. you know what I mean? If you <laughs> yeah. can't, uh, with all that you can learn about somebody yeah. else in a very short period of time, it's almost impossible to, to do that. Um, so study, know your audience, because okay. that'll allow you to make a connection to make your story more relevant to them. Okay. People are people are attracted to stories that they believe they're connected, they can find the connection to. Um, and then the second is that most storytellers don't have um, a call to action. Right, a, a good story should always lead the listener to want to do, think, or feel something at the end, right? And and you, as the storyteller, need to be intentional about what you want them to do, think, or feel. Don't let it happen by accident. Make it an intention, right? Make sure they're clear on what is supposed to happen at the end of the story. A good story. It doesn't matter, even if it's a story. My, my father used to say, the, you know, it's not just professional that it will. Help. It'll also make you the best dinner guest, right? You'll always get invited <laughs> to all does. the great dinner parties if it's you're a good true. storyteller. And but if I tell a story at a dinner, it should have a purpose, yeah. right? If it's a good story, it should have a purpose. It should, and the purpose could be as simple as I want you to think, wow, that guy's interesting. I'd like to spend more time with him. Yeah. Or that guy is interesting. I'd love to learn more about that from him, or whatever it might be. There should be there, there should be a call to action in every great story, and um, I think most storytellers fail in those two places. They don't know their audience well enough to make the story relevant to yeah. the audience, and they don't, um, you know, and they don't think about uh, what is that call to action at the end. That's very cool. So, I'm, I'm I I I kind of cheated because. It, um, Don, I, I heard your story from your father when you were young and he said, you should always selfishly ask a question for yourself. And I did two instead of one. <laughs> so that was one. Um, so I'll get to the second one, but we're not there yet. Uh, that, that's super cool. I mean, if you're listening guys, this is gold. So, <laughs> so take that one to the bank. That's a, that's pretty good. Great feedback. Thank you for that. It's currency of Kings and Queens. That's right. That's cool, right. Baby. Bring it on. A way to get invited to the dinner table. That's right. That's Always right. A, it's a way that's to right. get invited to a lot of free dinners. That's, that's cool. Yeah. Um, so, we talked about an impactful interview, obviously um, worked on. And what about the most interesting interview you've ever had and why? Wow. Um, I would probably say um, 
you know, you made reference to him earlier, and we talked about him a little bit. Uh, Walter Payton. Yeah. Um, Walter Payton was the greatest running back in the history of the National Football League. One of the most extraordinary men. He was my hero yeah. growing up. Like I, I wore his jersey number. I wanted to be. I was going to be the white Walter Payton, which all I was was white. <laughs> and um, I think you accomplished um, it just in different ways. But but um, uh, and we we got to know each other a little bit, you know, over professional um, interactions. And then he has this situation. He's yeah. 46 years old. Uh, he's diagnosed with cancer terminal. And he decides to write a book. And he invites me to come live with him, which I did. And I had the opportunity to live with your hero, right? Think yeah. about that, right? That's uh, And in, a, in the most vulnerable of moments, right? He, um, and it was... Um, so of all the interviews that we did, and again, I'm there 10 weeks as he's dying, um, there was one day and uh, that was extraordinary um, for it's for many reasons, but it was a day in which um, we're there together and nothing particularly special about it, but I chose that that was the day I was going to ask him a question that I really wanted the answer to, which was, you know, Walter, your first ballot Hall of Famer, Super Bowl champion all pro almost every year you played. Um, if you could trade everything you achieved for one day in your future, what would the day be? Um, and he didn't blink. Like he knew exactly what that was. And he said, I would give it all to walk my daughter down the aisle. <laughs> His daughter, Brittany was 13 at the time, but he, he proceeded over the course of the next hour to tell me what he would say to his daughter on her wedding day. And it was extraordinary. Yeah. It was just beautiful because he'd obviously thought through every bit of it, but he knew he'd never be there. Um, so Walter dies before I write the book, okay. which means he never got to see what I would write, which is the ultimate gift, right? He believed that I would represent him well enough that he could trust me without ever even seeing what the words would look like. Um, so I'm writing the book and obviously one thing I, I mean, I can't put that in the book because right. she's 13. No right. 13 year old should know that her dad was thinking about what he'd say to her on her wedding day. So it never appeared in the book. Uh, I didn't even tell Walter's widow, Brittany's mom about the, uh, about the conversation. I just kind of kept it. Yeah. 14 years later, I get a phone call from Brittany. I'm getting married <laughs> and I'd like you to be there. And I was like, wow, yeah, awesome. Not only will we be there, but, um, I need to come see you. And, uh, and so I flew to Chicago and I took with me the, um, uh, the words, the recording of Walter and what he would say to his daughter on the day that she would get married. And I got to share it with her, which was extraordinary. Um, we cried. We had an amazing I, I, I conversation. Don't know how you could have possibly gotten a word out, but keep going. Yeah, it was extraordinary. Um, so uh, awesome, right? And she gets this cool experience. Well, a few years later, on a TV show, she uh, she tells the story about yeah. me bringing that to her, and it was really cool. It was the first time anybody really knew that it happened. Because again, I didn't share it with anybody other than her. So all that was really cool. And then last summer, I'm speaking in um, in Phoenix to a, to a big bank. And Phoenix is now where Brittany lives. 
so the day before I'm there to speak, I call Brittany. Hey, I'm, I'm in town. Would love to see you. Oh, Don, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm skiing with my family. We can't be there. Good luck on your speech. Awesome. So the next day, I'm standing in the back of the room, at this country club and big crowd. And you know, the CEO of the bank gets up and he says, uh, you know, I was really looking forward to introducing Don today, but, um, but we got somebody special who's going to introduce him. And suddenly I turn around, I look, and walking past me is Brittany Payton. <laughs> Got you good. Who had lied to me. Uh-oh. And so I looked at her, I was like, you're a liar. <laughs> and she winked at me, and she walked to the front of the room, and she proceeded to tell this entire audience um, about the recording and about the opportunity to hear what her dad would have said to her. And um, so as you might imagine, I'm lying, well, I'm standing beside the room just bawling yeah. my eyes out, right, like <laughs> thinking about this. And then she goes, and now... Please don't make me speak. Now she's like, and now I've got Don here ready to speak to you and tell you. And I'm thinking, I've got to get up there after this. It was really tough to do, but it was was unbelievable and it was a really cool experience. But it's the, you know, it's the, um, it's the uniqueness of what happens when you, A, you get a chance to ask the right questions. We talked about asking great questions, very important. Get a chance to listen, right? And then make good choices. All of those things kind of came into play there, and all of them would be uh, things I would hope that in my career um, would be the things I would get best be best known for. That's a heck of a story. That's incredible. That's an incredible story. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, did you ever ask Walter Payton specifically why he chose you? Yeah, and and I mean I know the answer. It was he had been going. He decided he needed a writer and had interviewed several, and it just hadn't clicked. And um, as it happened, right in the middle of all that, I was uh, I was on Oprah Winfrey's show uh, as a guest, and um, and he saw me, and he remembered that he knew me, but he also heard. It was a very emotional story. I was on yeah. with Oprah to discuss, and um, and he thought, you know what, that's the guy. And so he chose me just randomly because he saw me on Oprah. I feel like there must have been something, though. He must have there. You must have said something that made him at peace with like, this is the guy who's going to tell my story. I mean, I think he he, I think he knew um, both from previous interaction and then from the appearance on the Oprah show that that I was um, uh, that I could handle, you know, emotional content. Okay. And that was what it, he knew it was going to be. Gotcha. And I think, um, but uh, but beyond that, I think there was also a little bit of a relationship thing. He, I wasn't first on his list, obviously, or he would have called me earlier. That's pretty cool, uh, but I was somebody that just, you know, happened to be in the right place, right time. That is so cool. I mean, because really, if you think about it, he was actually selecting the man who was going to be kind of the segue to his daughter. Mm. It wasn't like he was just choosing somebody to tell that story. You know? And that was one of the things that was unique in that relationship and, and grew to become really important. I mean, his his widow and his two children are still very close. We, yeah. we talk all the time. Um, and if I'm in if I'm in a city they're in and I'm they'll come watch me speak just because they want to hear me tell a story of their dad at some stage. It's kind of cool. Um, is that sometimes you end up in relationships that are game changing. And, yeah. um, and but it's got it. You've got to be open to the relationship. And, um, and so it's worked really well for me um, to be, because Walter often, I mean, I knew that I was actually being used in that relationship. There were things he was telling me, he was counting on me telling his to kids. To carry on. Right. 
there were things he knew he couldn't say to his wife that he knew he could tell me and that I would tell her at the right time. Um, and so it, was a, it wasn't just a writer relationship, right? right? It was, I, was a, I was truly a conduit of information within their family, and, um, and that allowed me to be, um, to be blessed with the relationship that I get to continue today. That's really, really cool. One of your characteristics is about, you know, making sure that you have that relation relationships and keeping that inner circle tight. And I think even it wasn't as high on, on the list as it is now. Um, <laughs> and true. I would need the, one of those original bookmarks. That. <laughs> I, I, I'd sell them to you if you'd like. <laughs> yes. But I mean, it all goes back to like, you know, you guys had that relationship. And yes, he did hear you on Oprah, but there was obviously something there before that. But, yeah. Well, my good fortune is he kept my number, which, yeah. uh, which worked out pretty that's easily. Cool. So that's good. That's cool. So I, uh, Kyla had this question, and I thought it was super cool. You well, if it's only, a good question, it probably was. Well, I hadn't thought of it. Uh, you not only write about leadership with today's athletes, uh, but also historical figureheads. Mm-hmm. Do you find it more fulfilling to write about sports or history? That's one. And the second part of it is, do you think that the, the leadership tactics that people you follow today are, per, are, are kind of the same as what they used to be? Um, let me work in reverse order. Okay. I, I, I think leadership is timeless. Okay. Right. Um, great leaders, great, uh, the ability to draw others to you, um, to see things around corners, which is what leadership really is, right? It's not about seeing what's ahead. Everybody can do that. Leaders see around corners. The ability to, um, to, to make others believe they are capable of more than they would naturally believe in themselves. Those skill sets, those will last forever, right? Those who have them. I get asked all the time. I spend a lot of time with a basketball coach named John Wood, extraordinary coach. And um, people ask, you know, could Coach Wooden, yeah. who won 10 national championships, could he, could he be relevant today? Absolutely he could be. Because, by the way, it wasn't about the way he ran an offense or the style of defense. He changed that every year based upon the talent that he had, yeah. right? Um, it was about identifying people of character that he wanted, that wanted to learn from him and that he could improve yeah. by, by having them in his presence. And do I not think he could find 12 of those any given year? I think he could. And I think if he did that, he'd still win today. It doesn't matter, right? Um, so leadership is timeless. Um, uh, so back to the other question of which do I prefer? Um, I, I, so it's funny. I don't consider myself a sports writer or a history writer. I think those are two. I, I'm a storyteller. Yeah. I, I think we've used that phrase a couple different times. And storytelling um, uh, is a, is something that I use. It doesn't matter what the topic is, right? Um, uh, I'm, I'm always looking. I, I, I listen to people through story. And I, can, I, I listen to people talk, and I imagine immediately how I would write their book. Um, it's, I know it can be kind of odd at times, um, but it's the uh, – so – Looking through, looking at things through the lens of a storyteller, it doesn't matter to me if it's history or sports or that's if cool. it's uh, an athlete that was 50 years ago or an athlete that's relevant today. I'm looking for the story. Yeah. And as long as I'm thinking through story and, I, and I'm thinking about communicating through story, then um, 
I think you'll find that that's the um, that's the the thread through which I write everything that I do. That's really cool. Um, I I think it was Wooden who you used to tell the Swin Nader story, which I got to tell you, I think that's it's not my favorite, but it's one of my favorite stories. Um, the way you tell it about you know this guy hanging out either side of the car and. Um, you know what really stood out to me uh, when you told that story? And this, this is a prime example of kind of what you're saying about things being leadership kind of being timeless. It's like he looked at this individual and knew you're going to be good, but it just may not be for the purposes that you think, right? Like when, when he goes to meet with the head coach to get the scholarship, uh, moving from community college to a major school – he looks at the coach. I think one of the things you said is the coach looked at him and said, I'm going to tell you two things. One, you're never going to play. Right. You're, like, yeah. you're not going to play. You're hardly ever going to play. Right. Right. But the, the deal was you're going to help train the best guy in the league. Right. You're tall. I'm going to put you here and you're going to train the best guy in the league. And I tie that back to some of the other stories you tell where it's a different story, but it, it's the same concept. When you talk about what makes teams great, one of the things you'll say is you say – everybody's serving to a greater purpose. So I, I may be the wide receiver who's not going to get the ball, but I'm running my route perfectly. So because that the, it's going to keep the defense there you go. honest, which means that the other guy can get the ball. And the coolest thing, like when I was really applying this, I was thinking deeply on kind of what you had said there, and I was tying it back to the Swin Nader story. You know, one of the coolest things about that story to, to me was that the coach told him his purpose day one. Mm -hmm. The coach literally looked at him and said, your purpose here is not to play. Your purpose is to make this Push guy the, the best guy, guy. Make him better. You right. know what I mean? And how cool is that? Like if, like when you're looking for leadership nuggets and like takeaways of how to be a better leader. Speak truth to people. Yes. Tell them exactly where they, what the role is. You tell know? them what they're, what you anticipate of them and, and. I mean, it, there's no vacuum, right? Yeah. One of the great challenges in, um, in in too many organizations is we think if we just don't tell them that detail, you know, something good will happen in the vacuum. No, actually, nothing good happens yeah. in a vacuum. I mean, unless you're selling vacuums. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know? And so um, I think that that's a that's a um, you know one of the great lessons. Good. Yeah. That, 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 and, that, and that goes back to your comment about, you know, some of these things are just timeless. Mm. I mean, you can take that concept and apply it. You can think back to a biblical story, right? This is, listen, if you're not biblical, don't worry about it. This is just a story. But my point is, take John the Baptist. Dude thinks he's going to roll out the guy who's going to save everybody. And he ends up sitting in a jail cell. Right. Right. To be beheaded. And he's probably sitting there <laughs> thinking, what is going on? Yeah. You know, so these, so you could apply that same concept and we could pick multiple stories throughout history. Right. Uh, and, and they have the same theme, same concept, but it's like, you're playing your part. And that part is designed to make it so that the whole wins. And to go ahead and bring it all the way around. Bill Belichick, what's yes. the sign? What's the sign they have at the, at the New England Patriots? They're, you know, well, I mean, he's no longer a New England Patriot. <laughs> what is the Falcons? <laughs> we, I don't know where he's going to be, but but the sign says, "Do your job," right? Yeah. Job. By the way, your job's different than my job. Yeah. Do your job. Yeah. Right. Don't try to do my job. Do your job. Yeah. And we're all good. Yeah. It, it, that's that's a cool thing that if you're listening and you and you and you take a few nuggets away, there have been a few today, but I think that's a huge one. 
It's like when you're, and we all deal in teams, you know, and even in business, people say salespeople always get treated different, right? Because they get the TNEA, the travel and entertainment accounts, they get to go on the road, they get to go to all the conferences, they get to do all these things. And it's, it's less sexy maybe, right? To be the person behind the scenes who's making sure that everything works. Right. But I was talking to our, uh, uh, one of our, um, vice presidents today. And, and we laughed because we were talking about making a big close, right? He's like, celebrate it the day it closes. Because after that, on comes the garbage. <laughs> like now it's all gonna, you know, now you got to fulfill it and the things break and things are troublesome and it's hard. And, you know, uh, and so it is interesting how all that stuff plays out, right? Absolutely. Um, things aren't always as they seem, I guess. But uh right. I, I thank you for that answer on that. And I, I love that story. Um, all right. Last question for you. And then uh, I'll reserve, you know, one for just you saying whatever you'd like to share with the people, but this is my last selfish one. So um, we owe it to ourselves to try to achieve excellence and or greatness. And this outcome varies from person to person. But what I selfishly want to know, Don, is your perspective on contentment. How does one who's always seeking excellence and greatness find contentment? Mm. Great question. But I would tell you, it depends on how you define contentment. Okay. See, contentment, if contentment is I've achieved, I'm good, uh, then you won't achieve greatness, in my opinion. You'll be good and you will, um, you might even be satisfied if you will call it that, right? I think the best, and that's who I love to study. I love to study people who want to achieve at the very highest level. The best are truly never content, but they're okay with that, right? They're, they're not, they don't think that that's an end goal. Um, you know, I say all the time, greatness is, um, is, is not a destination, it's a journey, right? Those who are trying to be extraordinary recognize that today is an opportunity for me to be just a little better than I was yesterday. Today is an opportunity for me to grow, learn, achieve something that I didn't achieve yesterday. Um, if I'm okay, if I've like, if I, if I think I've done it, um, and if that's how I define contentment, see, to me, I'm content with an understanding and a belief that I want to be better today than I was yesterday. Okay. I'm content with that. And I'm, I'm content with, I don't feel unfulfilled because I'm, I'm constantly, um, I'm constantly challenging myself and I'm good with that because I think that that's my, um, that's the way I fuel me, right? I fuel me by, uh, I, I don't think there's a place that you get to and, and suddenly go, okay, I, I can now, I can, I can now, uh, file for um, my uh, my retirement and you know and say I, I no longer have to do anything else because I've achieved um, I, you know like my son said I got 28 failures I, yeah. I got I got work I need to do um, yeah. to try to be better tomorrow and um, I think it I think it comes down to your definition of contentment and That's for me great. I'm content with the belief that um, that I have an opportunity today. To be better, and I would be, I would be uh, discontent um, if I didn't take advantage of that opportunity. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. 
Um, well, we've, I've already taken up more of your time than I should have. Um, I don't know if there's any kind of last nugget you'd like to share. I would reserve this for you if there's anything else. No, I just, uh, it, it, this was a fantastic conversation. I appreciate the uh, level of uh, preparation. Um, that's always really important. Um, you and I, we've, we've all gotten the chance to do many of these interviews and be around people who don't well prepare. And I think that that gets, uh, so I love that you all put so much energy into that. Thank you very much. It speaks volumes, uh, of you and, um, and of the team. And so I'm grateful. Um, for me, it's, I, I love the opportunity to grow relationships with people. And that's why I, that's why I wanted to come do this conversation. And, uh, and hopefully the, some of those who are listening might find value in some of the other things that we do at our podcast, um, Corporate Competitor, or maybe there's um, opportunities somewhere in, in, uh, to speak or wherever it might yeah. be. Yeah. It's, it's fun. Um, that's, how, that's how I chase my greatness every day. That's cool, Don. Could we plug your major, your main website, or where you would I'd send people? I'd be honored. It's uh, it's pretty pretty complicated. It's donjaeger.com. <laughs> okay. But and but by the way, another lesson, yeah. right? In uh, understanding the way the world works. Uh, my last name is Y A E G E R, Don Yeager. But I own the website Don Yeager, spelled Y E A. Very smart. G E R. Uh, you know, I also I should own Jaegermeister, but there's somebody I, beat me to that <laughs> in advance. You can Mike Jaeger bomb, uh, right? Uh, um, but yeah, I I would love to be able to be in relationship with other people. So. That's awesome. Well, to the listeners out there, thank you very much uh, for listening today. If you have any questions, please contact us or look for information on our homepage at www.fbmc.com. And remember, you can find us and subscribe on any podcast app. Um, Don, thank you again. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Take care. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Risky Benefits. If you're interested in learning more, please visit www.fbmc.com. We hope you'll join us next time on Risky Benefits.